And a very good morning to you. We are live from London and you're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. Coming up this hour, my panellists, Isabel Hilton and Stephen DL will be dissecting the day's big stories. A very good morning to you both. Good morning. morning. Stephen, what have you spotted? Well, I'm kind of looking forward and back, which I think is appropriate for a Sunday. So, of course, coming up this week, very relevant for me, indeed for everyone, is the first anniversary of the war in Ukraine. And looking back, um, well, it's been a fascinating week for British politics, unusually, with uh, Nicola Sturgeon resigning as the Scottish First Minister, with the Conservative government saying, are we going to rip up the North Island Protocol or not? So, all sorts of things, back and forth. Thank you very much indeed for that. We'll be getting the latest from Monocle's Oslo correspondent, Lars Bavan and Andrew Muller might give us his take on the last seven days if we've time. Plus, our editorial director, Tyler Brulay, joins me once again. This time, he's in St Moritz. It's the 19th of February, 2023, live from London. This is Monocle on Sunday. Live from Zurich, this is Monocle on Sunday with Emma Nelson. And a very warm welcome to you. Um, I am surrounded by superpowers today. I have Russia expert Stephen Diel and China expert Isabel Hilton. I don't think I've ever been surrounded with, with such sort of <laughs> esteemed and, quite frankly, intimidating um, banks of information. <laughs> but possibly... <laughs> we shall probably be... This is probably going to be the, the, the most comprehensive and thorough... I think it's spy week, as I think we can happily say. It's been spy week this week. Um, and we'll be looking uh, ahead to this uh, to this week's anniversary of the, uh, of the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. But... First, let's hear from our editorial director, Tyler Brulay. He's finished Tyler Brulay. He's finished his Asia tour and is now up in the Swiss mountains in Samaritz. Tyler, good morning. Are you having a rest? I'm I'm not having a rest. Oh, no. I mean, if I was having a rest, it wouldn't be wouldn't be doing radio this morning. Good morning, Guten Morgen, Emma. Nice to have you with us. When did you return? I returned uh well there was sort of a soft landing uh, in uh, in Europe anyway. I arrived in Helsinki on uh, on Wednesday made my way back down to, to Zurich on Thursday, made my way up to the mountains yesterday, um, and we'll um, get about 90 minutes' time, head back to Zurich. Wonderful. So just uh, recap, where we last week you were in Bangkok when we spoke to you. Where, where have you touched down into, in between? Well, indeed, uh, I think last time I spoke to him, I was uh, rallying around in a car uh, in the streets of Bangkok, uh, and we were heading to the, sort of the, the, the final moments of uh, Thai Design Week, which was great. Um, it was off to Singapore after that, which was, um, I guess, also a pleasant surprise because it was, you know, as, as I said last week, sort of the further south you go in Asia, the masks start to lift and uh, it's, uh, it just feels a little bit sunnier, a little bit more round the clock. And um, yeah, I was also just impressed by, by the mood um, in Singapore. You just feel that here's another, of course, you know, nation state in their case, hungry for talent, uh, a lot of relocation, of course, many moving chess pieces uh, as uh, people come to grips with what uh, China is going to look like in this next lap. Um, and that certainly means, uh, you know, clearly um, a lot of people looking at what, you know, what is their future in Hong Kong? Um, and that is from, you know, investments from uh, lifestyle. Where do you put your kids in school? Um, and it seems at the moment, uh, obviously, Singapore is a bit of a winner on that front. And um, why, why is Singapore doing so well here? I think a variety of reasons. Um, one you know, we can we, we sort of we can look back and remember that uh, from an Asian perspective, really Singapore you know, at every move uh, really tried to to get a grip on, yeah, trying to be a first opener, trying to of course you know they were trying to establish a corridor very early on between 
Hong Kong um, and Singapore. They really wanted to sort of push for this drive to, of course, be open. Uh, and, and, and you see that they were sort of, they've been sort of limber. They've been ready um, to, of course, uh, throw open their doors. And, um, and actually, when I was there as well, you even had um, the masks uh, now being removed also from the, the Mass Transit Authority as well. So it really, and I think they take pride in this position as well, that uh, they were cautious. Uh, they felt that they did all of the right things. Uh, but of course, they want to be first uh, to, to be seen to be fully reopened um, for the world. If we turn briefly to your column this week, it seems to be a tale of how uh, countries' soft power, something that we talk about an awful lot here, um, sort of wa- waxes and wanes a little bit. You you mentioned um, things as, as, as simple but as sort of established as embassies and shops and how they can create a presence in a country. Tell us a little bit about how that's been working on your travels. Well, yes, I was I was uh, on the rooftop of the uh, of the Park Hyatt. So the Park Hyatt is in, we're in Bangkok. It is um, in a building called Central Embassy. Now the embassy part of, of that name, uh, well, Central is obviously the group. Central, very very famous uh, uh, Thai retail group. Our listeners in in the UK will know that they've uh, recently bought Selfridges. They're the owners of KDV. In, in Germany now, uh, they, they own Rina Shente in Italy. So here you have a major Southeast Asian group. And if, I think, you know, on one side, if we sort of would look back 10 years, Emma, if you would have said to someone, Selfridges, um, you know, who, you know, who'd be picking that store up? You know, you would have thought maybe, maybe the Qataris, uh, you know, maybe it would be uh, a Russian oligarch. But would you have thought that it would have been a Thai family? So we're on this rooftop. Central, Central of course, is the name, of course, of the group, Embassy is the land that they bought from, from the British government. Um, so there was sort of part one where they built this enormous complex. And then you had a very, very large compound um, that Britain had behind the building. Um, very tropical, very lush. Uh, it was, you know, even though it was a little bit in the shadows, it was still a real show of force um, in the region. So I was with um, a colleague and a friend on the roof. I was trying to give them a bit of an orientation. Um, my colleague, Leonard, wanted to know where the Swiss compound was. And I said, well, it's just, it's in relation to the British embassy. And then I sort of looked out and thought, actually, the whole thing has just been completely leveled. And we'll recall a few years ago, um, Boris Johnson took some delight in saying that, you know, he was, you know, I, I'm not sure how much they, they got for it, several hundred million, um, that they offloaded the embassy. And, um, and now the British embassy is in an office tower. Um, I don't know if you see a Union Jack flying. I'm sure there's a plaque on the wall somewhere. But from a present point of view, it is remarkable at a time when brand is so important, nation brand is so important. You go around the center of Bangkok and you see the, of course, the enormous U.S. embassy. And you see, of course, uh, the Japanese, I mean, big players, of course, in, in, a, in a country like Thailand. But then also you've got like the Dutch and the Dutch have gone through this amazing rebrand uh, with this whole kingdom of the Netherlands. Uh, and, and you really see that this is a country which is selling itself, not just as a nation brand, but a country that has things to sell, that wants to push culture. It wants to push trade. And there is something about that which I think is, is suddenly missing when you disappear up an office tower. Um, one thing that I wonder whether you are missing is actually being in Asia and on your travels again. I mean, your, your, your perch in San Moritz is sun-filled and has tulips and a lovely view of the street. Um, but are you missing your travels already? Knowing you, well, I suspect I, <laughs> you're already booking your next flight. Yes, I was, uh, I was, we, were, we were just sort of discussing this, saying... Um, Every, you know, sometimes, you know, we talk about PJD, post-Japan depression. Uh, this is obviously a two-week trip, so it's a bit of a post-Asia depression. 
there, there is something about sort of the, the snap, of course, of being you know, out in the world. And, uh, and there is just a speed. And I, I think as we've been talking about over the last two weeks, you, you feel this energy that you know, Asia you know, is, is back in its groove. It's probably even pushing it a little bit, maybe overdoing it ever so slightly, uh, just to make you know, everyone aware that this is um, you know, a, a part of the world um, which is moving fast. And, and they want people, of course, to return and also return to, to cities and countries um, that people you know, have remembered very glowingly three years ago. Um, and that uh, if things haven't improved, then certainly they're, um, they're the same as they were before. So I, I've been trying, Emma, to, um, yeah, to, uh, to just sort of also keep moving, keep a pace now back in Europe um, to, to avoid the onset of, um, of PAD. We've just got to keep you moving so that your feet Indeed. don't touch the ground. Indeed. As long as you're moving, I think you're all right. Um, so moving ahead to next week, back in San Moritz, you're not, you're, you're, I'm sure you'll be going all over the place in between, but returning I'm to seeing San Moritz. I'm seeing you tomorrow. I'm in London tomorrow. Excellent. I wish I, <laughs> we'll sort that out. I shall see you tomorrow, Tyler. Um, yes. But we have, a, um, we have a wonderful little event next week, don't we, at San we, Moritz? We and do. a special monocle on Sunday. Fill us in. Absolutely. So next week is Nomad. So Nomad uh, is, uh, a newish art fair, uh, of course, uh, up here at 1,800 meters above sea level, and it's a fantastic gathering. For the past few years, it's been in Samadhan, uh, two villages away from here. It's now moved to Samarit, and, and this is a collection of outstanding galleries from around the world, uh, and they are going to be sort of perched in, in a wonderful new hotel that's opening soon. So we are going to be in position with Monocle on Sunday next week, talking to curators, gallery owners, artists, architects, um, so that will be um, one part of it. And then also, I'm, you know, I'm speaking to you from our little pop-up shop that we've done here. So we've taken over the cutest little kiosk on the roundabout in the center of San Moritz. Uh, it, was, it was a kiosk in its former life. It's part of the Stefani Hotel. Um, it then sort of turned into a space which was you could lease, um, well, you could rent yachts um, and, rent, and, and, and charter jets, etc. Um, in this small space. But we booted them out um, for a couple of months. Uh, and, and now we have takeaway coffees and magazines and all kinds of Alpine goodies to buy. Um, so we'll also be hosting, so uh, for, yeah, for our listeners and our readers, we'll be doing a little cocktail next Saturday afternoon as well from 4 till 6. Wonderful. I've never heard a roundabout described so romantically. Tyler Brule in summer, it's a pleasure to have you Thanks, as ever Emma. on Monocle on Sunday and see you tomorrow. Um, let's listen to that. Let me turn to you straight away, Isabel. Um, listening to, to Tyler's post-Asia depression, depression, and there was a sort of a, a sort of look of recognition on your face. Tell us a little bit about your experiences with this. Absolutely. Well, it's, it's, um, it's partly, as Tyler says, that there is this uh, extraordinary energy and confidence in in Asia, and uh, and you miss that when you when you come back, and because so much of what has been built in Asia has been built very recently, it's all quite shiny and new, and you tend to come back to the sort of tired old infrastructure, trains that don't work, you know, litter, broken things, and think, mm, you know, it's not so great now, is it's, it? It's not. It's not so great. Um, but you know, there is a, there is a downside. I, I, I the other day I was <coughs> listening to a Taiwanese academic talk about uh, Taiwan and TSMC, which is the big computer chip company, the world's most important producer of advanced chips. And she was describing the work culture there, which was absolutely horrendous. I mean, it is <laughs> seven in the morning till 10 at night, six days a 
a week. And so this was in the context of the difficulty of moving TSMC anywhere else. You know, you can open up a TMC, a TSMC in the United States, but getting people to work those hours, forget it. And China is having the lead one of the lead stories in the South China Morning Post today. <clears throat> talking of talent and, and, you know, the competition for talent, is that China itself is having trouble luring people back um, because also horrendous work culture and people just not really prepared. They want a better life. Mm. I mean, and, and arguably that's not too much to ask. I mean, we, we complain an awful think. lot about how people <laughs> yes. nowadays, mm. and sort of the older generation complain that the young young don't want to turn up for work. But frankly, I think arguably they might have a point with that. Well, indeed. And and this um, this lady who was talking about TSMC said, you're very lucky if you work at TSMC, if you're married or have a partner, or frankly, even if you've seen daylight. <laughs> <laughs> um, Stephen, I mean, again, you mean at the post-Asia depression and the post-China depression, you are a Russia expert. Your wife is Russian. Your love for Russia is long-running and profound. Um, what? How are your sentiments at the moment? Because we are a year since Russia became um, the sort of the world's number one enemy. If I let it go, I become deeply depressed. I'm also a very emotional person, which um, uh, in this case doesn't help. It's very Russian. <laughs> yes, um, I used to say that I was. Um, uh, nationality British, but with a Russian soul. I don't say that anymore. Why not? Um, is it just not? Is it not allowed? No, it's not. It's not allowed. I just don't feel it anymore. I just feel that um, on the twenty fourth of February last year, uh, I said, "That's it. I've had enough of Russia. Uh, I will do what I can to help Ukraine." Um, I translated two books last year from Russian to English. I thought, well, no one's going to want books translated from Russian. But then, in fact, there are two books: one looking at post-Putin Russia, which will come whenever, but um, he's not immortal, thank goodness. Um, and another one looking at the war. It's called A War Made in Russia. It'll be published later this year by Polity Books by Sergei Medvedev, a brilliant book. Um, and it's, But it's just so depressing. Um, and very interesting hearing Isabel talk about you know, post-Asia depression. I mean, mine, <laughs> mine is, is present Russia depression because, in fact, I, I can't go there now. It's not safe for me to go there, as with, with many people. And can you go back to China much, Isabel? Uh, remains to be tested. China's right. only just opened up, but I was having some difficulty with visas um, before COVID. So we'll see. China is now on what someone called a charm offensive without the charm. So it, it is quite keen on investment. It's keen on people to go. But for people who, you know, are less, perhaps more independent in their views, I think it would remain difficult. And, you know, there have been some very unpleasant hostage and cases in China. So a lot of scholars were very, very nervous about going to China now. Well, I wouldn't rule out becoming a hostage case in Russia if yeah. I were to go back. Um, they don't need a reason for it. They no. just, you know, the fact that, you know, my name is known, uh, you know, I broadcast regularly on Monocle about Russia. I write about Russia. Um, uh, you know, I've covered Russia in, ver in various ways for... 40 years now. And in terms of, you know, in, in, in those four decades, and, and Isabel, your coverage of China goes back, I'm not sure if Quite it's 40, but it goes back <laughs> yeah. a little while. A little, more, uh, more, it goes back 50. Actually. Okay, 50. All right, this is now a competition. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I know more about my patch than you do. Um, but just looking at that, the, f the fact that, it, you know... <laughs> Regimes have changed and history has changed and perceptions have changed and relationships have changed. Nonetheless, your job has not changed insofar as you need to find out what is going on. Yeah. How is that changing now as doors are closing? Well, curiously enough, in, in China circles, I've seen perhaps 
four um, essays in the last um, month on reporting China from afar, just as we did in the Cold War, you know, when people sat in Hong Kong and exchanged intelligence with journalists, with spooks, with, with, you know, whoever was coming and going, because China had long periods of being very, very closed down. And now the journalists are largely relocated in Hong Kong. Um, the uh, some of the ironic, en- given what's happening in Hong Kong. I mean, uh, how, I'm how, sorry. How soon do they move? Well, uh, many of them have have actually moved to Taiwan now. Um, so you've got a China correspondent sitting in in Taipei rather than Beijing. A lot of the NGOs are hanging by a thread, even in Hong Kong. We have a trial of forty seven, pe- you know, activists uh, this week in Hong Kong who are on trial for having having organised a. Uh, um, and, and you know an electoral exercise or a kind of pre-election exercise so things are things are very tight and and in a way those old skills which i'm sure you have in spades Stephen, of of you know the cold war kremlinologist the 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 word was born for that moment of trying to figure out what's happening looking into the black box from a distance that's that's what we I mean there's a, there's a lot more in some ways a lot more data now because of the digital world that you know you can track what's happening in Xinjiang through local building contracts through you know all kinds of data which is lying around on the web you can you can reconstruct pretty much blow by blow the building of those camps without having been there but what you don't know now is you know what's happening in those camps today because you can't go there so so it's all of that and Russia covering Russia from the outside when Arguably, everybody is looking at Russia, but finding out what exactly is happening in Russia is two different things. It is indeed. And I, I think there, there are two, as, Elizabeth, as Isabel was speaking, I was thinking that there's, there's two things here. I mean, there's, there is still some very good journalism around Russia coming from Russian journalists yeah. who aren't in Russia, although they have their contacts. Um, I think uh, particularly of Medusa, um, which um, is, is online and produces a daily bulletin of uh, an amazing little tidbits about Russia, not just the the headline news, but w- what is happening in Siberia and and, and uh, other parts of Russia. So so that is invaluable now for anyone who, um, who who wants to follow what's going on in Russia. But I think the second part of it is you have to be totally honest, and in, to to certain questions you have to say I don't know. Yeah. And the, the, obviously the, the big question is, well who's going to come after Putin or if Putin something happens to him tomorrow who's going to take over and the only honest answer that a a Kremlinologist or anyone can give is we don't know because he has created such a system now where he he shut himself away during uh, the pandemic I mean literally shut himself away uh, hardly went out at all um cut off from the rest of the world, cut down his number of advisors. We reckon there's probably five around him. But those five have been chosen, um, not only because they run the power ministries, as they're called, and that's nothing to do with energy. That means the, the military, the, the Secret Service, um, the Interior Ministry. Um, they, they run these ministries, which are almost like little states within themselves. They have their own armies. But he's also chosen, made sure that people who run them hate each other and don't trust each other. So we really don't know. And that's why you get stories like the, the appalling, I will use the word appalling, Evgeny Prigozhin, um, who, of head course... Head of Wagner, isn't he? Head of Wagner, originally set up the, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the troll factories and so on. Um, and now the head of Wagner. I mean, the Va- Wagner is just, it's just awful. They've just put a second video online. I haven't 
watched it, I don't want to watch it, of one of their people who they considered betrayed them being killed with a sledgehammer to the head. Um, there's two of them they put out now. Uh, and, you know, so this is the, and Prigozhin uh, describes these as well-made videos. I mean, this is the kind of people, but he, he's not one of those five, but he's kind of on the outside and making loud noises and saying, path, the army's no good, we're the ones who... Um, so you've got this struggle going on so we know there's a struggle, but who would emerge from it if Putin were to drop dead tomorrow? No one knows. China the same problem? Um, not not quite. I mean, they're not putting out videos of people being beaten to death with sledgehammers, but the hermetic, the increased, you know, kind of hermetic nature of the regime and the mistrust is, is, is pretty... Uh, it's certainly parallel. Xi Jinping put into the Standing Committee of the Politburo some... Loyalists, I mean, frankly, you know, rather than, than experts. He went for party loyalty. And I'm sure, and perhaps you have the same experience, Stephen, that it's not just journalists. There is a whole ecosystem of information in which we all move. You know, we all talk to lots of people. You know, we talk to businessmen, we talk to diplomats. Diplomats talk to diplomats, diplomats and to journalists. And and in China, there is um, there are circles and circles and circles of advice and information. People, it's a huge country, so you know it's not just the party that rules. It, there are think tanks and experts and lots of people you could, if you get to China in the old days, talk to because people wanted to talk. They also wanted to understand us. Indeed, and, well, yeah. the loss now of that general ecosystem, partly three years of COVID, but also now the politics that's emerged from it, means they don't understand us and we our understanding of them is diminishing and you in the in dare I mention balloon gate you saw that playing <laughs> out I mean in spades it's an interesting thing that you mentioned there is that people like to talk and you can yeah. and as has been played out centuries long if you have if you try the more you try and impose regimes on people um, the more people will be keen to talk. Yeah. So this is something irrepressible, which arguably is the only hopeful statement we've had in the last 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're pretty scared at the moment, though. They're pretty, they're scared. pretty scared, yeah. But, uh, but that Russia. Was, yeah, but that was, that was always one of the great pluses of, um, of when I could go to Russia regularly. And, you know, I, I mean, I speak fluent Russian. I, I started learning at school when I was 13 and have worked with it ever since. And so I would go into a meeting or just start, you know, bump into someone on the street or, or whatever and start a conversation and then they would say and then they might say mm, Where are you you're from? not Russian are you, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know however much I try with it the accent's not bad but it's you know I'm still a foreigner and they're oh really yeah and they would actually be interested um another great way actually for um and this, sorry this is a very blokish comment but I would go I went be in some very serious business meetings and quite soon I've probably I brought up the subject of football and it really it is an icebreaker. Oh, yeah, it's fantastic. Absolutely um, works a treat. I remember being in Blagovyshinsk in uh, the far east of Russia um, uh, and going into a meeting with the local um, foreign trade minister. Um, and I can't remember how it came up. It came up pretty, pretty soon. And he said, it's about football, and he said, oh, yeah, I, I love watching your Premier League. I support Man United. I said, well, we hate Man United, but, um, <laughs> you know, I'm an Arsenal fan, but, you know, and, and we were away. That was it. And, uh, and, and another time I was interviewing uh, Stanislav Shatalin, who was a, a, one of the economists who, under Yeltsin, tried to bring on changes to the economy. Um, and uh, I had interviewed him for 45 minutes about, it, about the economy, and, and then his secretary came in and said, look, you know, you, you, you're, 
you're, you're not a well man, you know, you really must. He said, no, no, we're talking about football now, go away. <laughs> and we talked for another half an hour about football. And that evening, I happened to b- literally bump into him quite by chance at a, a match Russia were playing at Germany at the National Stadium. We arrived at the same time. He hugged me like a long lost friend. <laughs> so th- th- that language can, can really help. What, too. Do you, what do you use for football? <laughs> and and it, I mean, he's it, also made the really important point, Stephen, haven't you, that about that if you speak a little bit of the language, it absolutely opens doors. There was a, the, the French actor Vincent Cassel this week said rather something rather sort of like um, rather striking. Um, so he speaks four languages, of course. So he uh, said that if you live in a country, you need to speak the language. Otherwise, you know, you just don't get it. Yeah. But there is that, that joy of being able to say something little and then a door opens and before you know it, you're being hugged by a Russian football match. Absolutely. Well, I, I did. <coughs> Unlike Stephen, <coughs> Stephen's experience in Russia, it's quite hard to pass as Chinese. <laughs> for, if, you're, if you're not <laughs> so, so you know, they, they do tend to know quite early on that you're not Chinese um, but then if you speak Chinese it's, it's as though a, you know it's as though a miracle has happened <laughs> they are extravagant in their praise they tell you how extraordinarily fluent you are and just the general astonishment that you speak Chinese at all it's, it's a very kind of touching if you know you, can, you shouldn't get too carried away because you'd stumble in the third sentence but, oh, well, but it is very nice and then and and then, you know, I, I was just trying to think what my equivalent of football is. And it doesn't generate the same kind of great blokish passion. But you can always talk about food in China. People mm. are really keen to talk about food. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. I suspect in about 15 to 20 years' time, MI5 or MI6 might be releasing papers about you two. <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear! Yes, not, I'm not going to tell you what Jahan, who's nodded in that room just there, but maybe I have two spies in the room, or two former spies, uh, two leaky spies. Um, how, so it's been it's been Spy Week, hasn't it? We've we've had the, the the British gentleman who's been making furious love to Russia while being a security guard in Berlin, and let's return immediately, Isabel, to to balloon. What's it, what did you call it? Balloon, balloon gate. gate. Yes. Right. Where are we up or to? Or balloon. Where are we up <laughs> to with balloons gate? We've, I must confess, the New York Times is running um, a really lovely series of photographs. You know when they retrieved the balloon from yeah. the from the from the ocean, and someone said actually the pictures that they have uh, that have been taken are sort of slightly reminiscent of Jericho's Raft of the Medusa in terms of their poetry <laughs> and their their beautiful <laughs> composition. That yes. there's a sort of moment a moment of incredibly elegant history as they hauled this bit of balloon onto onto a raft. But this this has got terribly serious for a very long time hasn't it it just keeps going it, yes i mean and it partly because it's playing out in the domestic politics of both china and the united states so of course that you know means it whilst it is also kind of a lot of fun in both places it's also pretty serious um just before i expound on bloomgate however i just for the record <laughs> you're not a spy <laughs> well put it this way i was accused by mi5 of being i was blacklisted by mi5 for speaking Chinese. I was then um, accused by the Argentinian uh, Secret Service, uh, a bit of an oxymoron, of working for MI6. I was then blacklisted by the Indians for talking to Kashmiri <laughs> and so on and so forth. So I, if I'm a spy, I'm spying for an awful lot of people you're and it's jolly confusing. Bu- you're very busy. Um, do you have anything to top that, Stephen? Uh, not to top it, but just to say that, well, first of all, as I mentioned, being very emotional, I'd be hopeless as a spy, you know, because I'd, I'd tell everything to anyone anyway. Um, but um, going back way back to when I was a student in Kiev, um, 
40 odd years ago, uh, more than 40 years ago. Uh, yeah. Um, and um, one day I was called into the university um, to be told that someone wants to see you. So I thought, okay. And then, then this little chap was there in his briefcase and suit, and I'm you know, dressed like a student. And they said, oh, you can use the, the head of the, the foreign department's office, you know, which is, uh, wow, you know, we weren't only allowed to go in there. So we went in, this long table, and he said, you sit that side, I'll sit the other side. And um, he then reached into his pocket and pulled out and sort of flipped open, rather like a, you know, a scene from a, a cop movie, you know, sort of flipped open this pass. And I, I remember thinking, oh, my God, this is it. This is the KGB. What have I done? I, I don't... I, you know, and I then had suddenly heard him saying, this was 1979, so on the eve of the, the Moscow Olympics for which there were football matches in Kiev too. And he said, he said um, I'm from the organising committee for Kiev for the Olympic Games and we understand that um, you like football and we've got a whole list of football terms here. Would you, like, would you translate them for us? By which time I was sort of gibbering, Rex, oh, yes, 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 of course, of course. Yes, yes, yes. I'll cry, just don't hurt me. So, so, yes. Just don't put me under the stairs. So I'm afraid, no, I can't, definitely can't top Isabel's stories. That's, that's, that was the closest I got. It wasn't even the KGB. What a shame. <laughs> anyway, the balloon. <laughs> so what's interesting me about the balloon is that we've suddenly got it, a whole new domain for competition, which is near space, which I, I certainly hadn't given much thought to. So you know about spy planes and they fly at the height that planes fly and you know about satellites but there's a layer in the middle um, which is apparently is absolutely chock-a-block with balloons of all kinds and, <laughs> and the Americans admit it they, they launch thousands of these things you know for weather every year and everybody does so there are weather balloons there's all sorts of stuff floating around in there and then enter the Chinese um, espionage uh, program which turns out of course once you start looking for it as you start looking for balloons has a long history so all sorts of papers have been uncovered you know by balloon entrepreneurs in China explaining why near space is a huge opportunity for for Chinese and espionage they've been popping up everywhere and they have been popping up everywhere although the, the Americans have NORAD has shot down three things you know after the large balloon um you know over alaska and canada and so on and uh, have rather shamefacedly admitted at the end of the week well mm, it turns out they weren't really military at all so they, they've given up trying to get the bits it costs half a million every time you shoot one down because those missiles are jolly expensive they take a lot yes they're the, quite expensive so, as are the jets so you could think that this was all a all a plan to bankrupt the american air force <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is where i wish i was a cartoonist actually because yeah. i can I've, i'm visual visualising this, you know, in, in this um, near space, you know, all these balloons going and you could have them talking to each other and sort of saying, you know, what weather have you spotted today? Well, I'm not spotting weather, I'm looking, I'm spying actually. <laughs> yes, yeah. um, it's lovely, it's quite pretty, isn't it? I think it this is. is the thing there's a, there's a, there is an inherently light-hearted characteristic to a balloon. Uh, how could there not be? And yes. it makes it quite difficult to report this story without laughing. Indeed. So how yep. do you go about making a balloon story not funny? Well, I guess you, um, you if you listen to um, the, far, the, the the Republican right, you know, it is a Chinese balloon spelled the end of civilization. So they get, but that's pretty ridiculous too. So I agree, yeah. it's a problem. But the Republican right doesn't have a sense of humour. That's that's their advantage. They can talk about this, put on a dead serious <laughs> face, and they can talk about these Chinese balloons. They're spying on us. This is the end of civilization <laughs> as we know it, and and they won't laugh because they don't have yeah. a sense. of humor. It's a balloon. But what we do, we do know that the no two things. The Chinese, of course, said it's just a 
weather balloon. It was all a mistake. One part of that is true. It was a mistake. It did get blown off course. It was meant to be uh, spying on American military installations in Guam and Hawaii. But then it got to the States and they thought, hey, this is interesting. <laughs> Let it rip. <laughs> and, and, and the whole thing was all, all a bit um, ad hoc. I it's love, there was that huge sense that this was all one massive mess. Yes, and and a massive, massive mess, which actually didn't turn totally toxic, although a, an important diplomatic trip was, was cancelled as a result. But what it also revealed was that, you know, the communications between the United States and China are pretty rubbish. And if it had turned out to be, you know, something that, well, you know, that, that and imagine, for example, as happened some years ago, that there had been a, a collision between an American spy plane and, and a Chinese fighter, which, which did happen, and the Chinese died. Um, we don't have the kind of open lines that we need for... You couldn't shut it down quickly. Well, exactly. And so there was one point when an a, you know, American Secretary of Defense was trying to call his Chinese counterpart. He just wouldn't take the call. And the Chinese side, you know, they can't take a call because they can't say anything which hasn't been agreed by the party. So, so actually the mechanism, the, the mismatch in systems mean that the mechanisms for those hotlines are really, really fragile. And that's happening work. in Russia too. And that's yes. not what you want to have happen when you have very hot spots all over the place. Indeed. Um, just, I mean, just building on the idea of mistake and lack of, lack of communication channels and what have you, um, there is a, that, that sort of thought that we, as you know, individual nations, run very human and haphazard spying and, and espionage services. Not that you would ever know you two, but but you know, but the enemy is in, obviously incredibly good, incredibly together, and and, and incredibly organised. This has demonstrated the fact that every country is is as slapdash and as and as mismatched and as subject to a, a gust of wind. Yeah, and uh, actually one of the things that's happened with uh, because of the war with Russia is that Russia is now finding it far more difficult to spy. We even had Austria expelling four diplomats for, uh, for, for espionage in the last couple of weeks. I say even because Austria has had a somewhat checkered history, should we say, post-Second World War. I mean, it really goes back to that, um, where you know it was known as the spy capital. Vienna was the spy capital of the world because East and West could meet there and um, all sorts of uh, shenanigans went on. Um, so if Austria is taking it seriously then and, and realising that these Russians are spies, then you know that, that, that shows how... To really how poor the Russians have become at this um, and because also because of the war because everyone's more wary now of the Russians you know the Russians uh, Putin blamed NATO for, for that it was their fault to start the war and one of his results is to expand NATO um, so you know the, the, the his intelligence from Kiev before the war was appalling because he was being told like all good dictators what they thought he wanted to hear rather than what the facts were you know that, that Kiev was not going to fall in three days and Zelensky wasn't going to run away or be shot um, you know the, the number of mistakes show that actually their intelligence isn't terribly good either, nor is their army but their intelligence isn't, isn't terribly good now well that's that's a problem too because China um, there was a, the senior Chinese diplomat who admitted the other week that yes Chinese don't really understand Europe, but fortunately we have the Russians to tell us about it. <laughs> well, not now. And Actually, that's a point. Sorry, but Isabel, it suddenly struck me that you were saying how, you know, you wouldn't be taken for a Chinese in China. Um, 
presumably that makes things a bit more difficult for them as well. When they're over in Europe, they won't be taken for a European. So they have to rely on locals or people who you know, are sympathetic to China but aren't actually Chinese to get a lot of their, their intelligence from Europe or the United States. There's a lot of that. Um, there's a lot of you know, digital espionage too. Mm, I mean, if you yeah. remember, um, the Chinese managed to steal something like 150 million personal records in, in the United States. And, and with AI, you can put together information like traffic movements where where is he parking so maybe he works at langley you know that kind of thing look at his uh, look at his bank records is he likely to be vulnerable to pressure so the chinese have actually had a massive mm. program of stealing information and that has in some ways quite negative effects because as suspicions you know the, in the superstructure become deeper a lot of people who are just, you know, at university or doing research programs or doing the kind of exchange that is absolutely normal between countries that trust each other also can't fall under suspicion. You know, are they stealing secrets? Are they are they operating as, as, as agents? And so a lot of people, you know, have found that the weather's got a little chillier. A lot of Chinese who are actually just doing rather normal things. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday. It seems to be a spy special. Isabel Hilton and Stephen Diel are joining me in the studio to talk about espionage and how it works nowadays. But first, let's head to somewhere slightly more open and welcoming. Our Oslo correspondent Lars Bevenge is joining us. A very good morning to you, Lars. Good morning. Not, not great to have you with us on uh, Monocle on Sunday. Um, we've been talking a little bit about NATO and a little bit about Ukraine, but we've had President Volodymyr Zelensky at the Norwegian Parliament this week. Yes, he was there uh, on a video link, not to talk about uh, wayward balloons. We haven't had any in Norway. We're very, very jealous, obviously. <laughs> Give it uh, time. But <laughs> he, uh, he he addressed the parliament because he, he wanted to thank uh, Norway for a, a, a massive uh, aid package, which was announced uh, um, just earlier this month. It's worth 7.3 billion US dollars uh, over five years. But what happened this week was that uh, parliament approved it uh, nearly unanimously. It was just uh, three three votes against from the far, less, far left Red Party. Uh, and uh, Zelensky um, said it, it was a, a very important signal as as well as obviously a very, very welcome donation, but a signal to other nations to have a, have a long-term uh, plan for support for Ukraine, not just, um, you know, uh, get, get more arms now, uh, now we know, need this, but to, to have this uh, sort of financial security, he, he, uh, he argued, was, uh, was very, very important. And there's a lot of uh, reassuring messages coming from Norway and, you know, the, the donations there is not inconsiderable, is it? No, not at all. It's it's um, uh, so, so on top of what Norway has donated so far. So it, it, last year it donated about one billion worth uh, US dollars worth of uh, military and civil um, support, uh, which makes Norway one of the world's largest donors to Ukraine per capita. Um, tell us a little bit more about the fact that uh, Norway has been playing a large part at the Munich Security Conference as well. Well. The uh, current Secretary General of NATO, of course, is Jens Stoltenberg, former Norwegian Prime Minister, um, uh, and he has, for the first time last week, indicated that uh, Finland might join NATO before Sweden because Turkey is still opposing uh, Sweden's membership 
uh, as we know that NATO, new NATO members have to be ratified by all the current members of NATO and Hungary and Turkey have uh, uh, have refused to ratify uh, Sweden in particular because uh, they argue that they uh, they are harboring what they see as Kurdish uh, terrorists. Now, uh, the the problem for Sweden and for the Nordics as, as a whole, I, I guess, is that if Sweden, uh, sorry, if Finland becomes a NATO member without Sweden uh, in the first round, uh, Sweden will be in, in splendid isolation. It will be very, very um, problematic, potentially, uh, that, that we have one of the, the, well, the only Nordic countries not being a NATO member when all, all the others are. And it's for Finland and Sweden as well. They are very very closely aligned when it comes to, uh, to to military cooperation. So for, for Finland to go it alone for, for uh, however long it would take to get Sweden in could could become a problem. There is that issue, isn't there? That, that both Sweden and well, apparently Sweden has tacitly given its permission for Norway for, for Finland to join NATO, but Finland has said no. We are patient. We can wait for this. I mean, is there any element that there, there is? Is there any space for patience? Well, this is the thing. They've they've already waited for nearly a year now, uh, and um, Finland has has said this, as you said. But I, th- I think that in Finland they are also getting ready to uh, to join. If if it's being ratified by all NATO or current NATO members, it'll have to be ratified also in the Finnish Parliament. And I do think there's a, there's a, a, a desire in Finland to to get in as soon as possible because who knows how long it's going to take before Turkey comes on board and uh, will allow Sweden in. Indeed. Uh, Let's move on to some other um, subjects that have been dominating the Norwegian news. Um, Let's have an absolute handbrake turn now and talk about royal news. Not something that we massively dwell on here at Monocle 24, but we we do like it when there is a little bit of sand in the ointment. Uh, What's happening? Well, we've we've got a bit of a, a Prince Harry light story this week. Um, the, it's about the Norwegian uh, princess Marta Louise. She's the sister of the future king. Uh, and uh, she has given an interview to a Swedish TV channel uh, where she's basically launching a bit of a broadside against Norwegian media, who she feels has been treating her and her current fiancé, uh, an American uh, self-proclaimed shaman called Durek Verret, uh, <laughs> for, uh, <laughs> being very, very critical uh, towards them. And she, she said that she was probably the one in Norway who had received the most criticism of all, which is... is um, it, but, well, I can think of other people who've had more criticism than her, perhaps. Um, the, the, she left, she also, like Prince Harry, she left the royal family um, last year to to pursue her business interests, but also uh, because it had become a problem that uh, her fiancé is, um, shall we say, quite alternative. And he's been <laughs> claiming that he can uh, cure COVID with a, with a talisman that he sells online and things like this. So it was be- becoming problematic for the royal household in Norway and she agreed uh, to to step down from her, her royal duties uh, but she also claimed in this interview that um, her, her former husband and uh, from whom she was divorced he he killed himself sadly in 2019 <clears throat> and uh, she went pretty far in this interview to claim that the, the the hounding of him from the Norwegian media again had contributed perhaps to his mental health uh, she, she sort of stop shy of blaming the media for his death but it, it has provoked a, a huge reaction in Norwegian media a counter reaction if you like who uh, who think that she's gone way too far well there is that thing isn't there that that I think we all know how um Prince Harry and Meghan's um sort of a large 
amount of exposure on in the media has been received by lots and lots of people. I think polarising is a rather sort of like gentle word to describe what's happening. I mean, how has all this gone down in, with the Norwegian equivalent? Well, people see it more as a bit of entertainment, I think, and there's not, a, you don't have sort of camp martyr and camp anti-martyr, like you've got sort of supporters and, and uh, opponents of Prince Harry in the UK. Um, the Norwegian family, oh, the, the royal family is, is very well liked in Norway, and they've got a huge... Um, uh, but pe- people have generally a huge respect for for the king and the and the queen, and there's also quite a lot of respect for the the future king, uh, Marta's brother. Uh, so it hasn't really polarised society uh, as much. And uh, it's interesting also that she gave this interview to a Swedish television channel and not a Norwegian one. <laughs> so um, it's it's a story that um, that gets a lot of tabloid uh, coverage. But I think the most people, if you ask people in the street, they they'd just say, well. She She's been controversial for a while and this is, this is really nothing new. Lars Bavanger, thank you so much for joining us on the line. That was Monocle's Oslo correspondent. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday. We'll be back in just a moment. Fancy a read on one of Europe's freshest regions? You are in luck. The Monocle Book of the Nordics is out now. Inside we profile how quiet diplomacy, thoughtful design and recent debate, plus the odd steamy sauna, have made this part of Northern Europe one of the world's best places to visit, understand or call home. There's a real sense that these are places that should be part of a broader debate about how we think about the world that we live in, how we think about making cities, making food, making clothes, making furniture. Taking in design, art and culture across Denmark, Finland, Sweden, Norway and Iceland, our book brings the Nordics to you. Head to monocle.com forward slash books to order your copy of the Monocle Book of the Nordics today. Tak and kiitos. Welcome back. And you are back with Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. It's 9.45 here in London. My panellists today, Isabel Hilton and Stephen DL. We've spent 45 minutes talking about spies. Maybe we should move away from that in case we create too much attention. Um, There's a lot of conversation um, in the news about the coverage of... uh, of the news itself and the way that television stations are operating. Um, Stephen, there's a couple of stories that, that are on the front page of the Sunday Times. Yes, I rattle the paper just so that people know that it's we do so still have, you have a paper. actual newspapers. That. Yes, um, yeah, The lead story in the Sunday Times, TV stations shut as Iran's killers target UK staff. Um, so this is a, a dissident Iranian television channel which has been broadcasting from Britain. And... Um, MI5, sorry, I knew we were trying to get away from spies, but um, MI5, the British espionage agency, has said to them, we cannot guarantee your safety, so we recommend you move to the United States. So just remind us of that. A, a TV station in the United Kingdom is being, is being, recognized, is being um, advised to, to move away. So we've got an Iranian television station, um, which is um, uh, broadcasting uh, for Iran, um, but from Britain. It has about 100 staff who work here in Britain. Many of them are long-term British residents. Uh, And MI5 has said to them that there's been at least 10 incidents um, of suspicious plots or attempts to take people out. They're not not giving too much details on that. Here on UK soil. Here on UK soil. And they're now saying to them, 
we cannot guarantee your security. So we, we think you should move to the United States. In other words, pass the buck. So um, get the Americans to deal with um, it. Do we have any reaction from the United Kingdom in, uh, with regards to these allegations? Not, not in, in the story that I've seen, no. Um, but it's just, they said, the, um, for example, Ken McCallum, the director general of MI5, revealed that the regime in Tehran had sought to murder or kidnap individuals in the UK on at least 10 occasions since the start of the year. And here we are in the middle of February. Goodness me. So they're obviously coming under quite a significant attack. Um, there's a rather twee cartoon um it's got someone looking reading a book he's sitting on the floor reading a book with a, a mullah standing behind him and he's saying they shut down the telly so i thought i'd read a book and the book is the satanic verses so um humor he's they're trying to put a bit of humor into it but i'm that sure doesn't strike me. that's a yeah not entirely sure how that how successful that is um, no. but that rings bells with china doesn't it um isabel the fact that We've had incidents or, or we've had a sort of a narrative that if you are Chinese and you are here in the United Kingdom, they can still come and get you. Indeed. And and uh, certainly I, I, we haven't had... I mean, this goes back a long way to... You remember Georgi Markov, I'm sure, mm-hmm. who, who, yeah. who was... Uh, also, he was working for, for BBC, um, BBC Bulgarian, service. Bulgarian mm. service and was stabbed with a poisoned umbrella as he crossed the bridge on his way to work one morning. Um, so, you know, the kind of assassination of people who are troublesome overseas is, you know, is, is not... It's not new. I'm not aware that the Chinese have done this, although they do do a certain amount of um, intimidation and... As far as kind of high-profile businessmen go, you know, they, they, have, they have snatched people from Hong Kong, particularly in, in the days before the national security law. Um, and, you know, people are, they actively want people who have left China back in, in order to, you know, keep them quiet. Um, but I, I don't know of any assassination, I have to say. And we, I mean, we've had, in terms of the way that people have been able to operate internationally, this is an Iranian television station operating in London, isn't it? Mm. I know that, I'm, am I right in thinking that BBC Persian, which had been able to broadcast out of Iran, now only broadcasts out of out of broadcasting house in London? That's right. That was another recent development because it's just too dangerous for their stringers, um, the people who occasionally do stuff, not not. Um, actual staff, BBC staff, but it's too dangerous for them to be broadcasting f- um, live from uh, from Iran. Um, there's another. There's a, actually there is a Russian edge to this as well. Um, there's a. Um, I mentioned Medusa earlier. Well, there's another very reliable Russian source of information called Dojd Dojd TV. Dojd means rain. Um, they were broadcasting from within Russia until a year ago. Um, they moved to Latvia, um, but. They are broadcasting, they make it quite clear, they are broadcasting in Russian for Russians. Um, and so they sometimes use the word, you know, we have done this, you know, or our army has done this. They're not, doesn't mean they're supporting what the Russian army is doing in Ukraine, but they, they've used those terms. And they accidentally showed a map uh, on, on the screen, which included Crimea as part of the Russian Federation. And the Latvian authorities came down on them like a ton of bricks, and in fact suspended their broadcasting license. Um, they've uh, they've appealed and they appear to have got it back for now but it um it, it's interesting how even broadcasting you know from another country particularly but of course in, in latvia generally in the baltic states this is a very sensitive issue uh, and so they've they've been allowed to carry on for now but they they've talked they may have to move to another european country it, I mean, this is in in a way kind of falls into a pattern what we're familiar with. But what I think has also changed 
radically in the last decade is the whole question of trust in news, misinformation, disinformation, and the weaponization of information uh, across a very, very broad front. And another story that we, we noticed earlier um, was, was the fact that Rupert Murdoch himself called what Fox his own station was broadcasting on Trump's election claims. He called them bonkers. And, you know, and as did many of the most virulent commentators on Fox News, and they are very virulent, they knew they were talking nonsense. And yet they carried on doing it because they were apparently afraid of losing viewers. I think it's people afraid of losing their jobs as well, that if you don't turn the line, because we have but if a the very, very precarious space. Yes, indeed. But if the boss doesn't believe it, you know, what is going on here? It, the whole thing is a kind of mad construct. And all this came out because of the Senate inquiry into, um, you know, it's one of the, the great trove of documents that that uh, resulted from, from a Senate inquiry. And there are emails and, and text messages between people working at Fox about the rubbish that they're broadcasting. At least they're aware. At least they're aware of it. Um, I don't know if you're aware of this story about coming out from France. It's been around for a couple of weeks now. Um, BFM, which is sort of like France's leading news channel, um, its overnight presenter, a gentleman called Rashid Mbaki, um, has been taken off air and suspended because of an inquiry into whether he's been taking stories from an Israeli information mercenary group. Good grief. And they are, uh, and, and he had broadcast all manner of different kinds of stories um, with this, this organization which had been sending him um, uh, messages or sending him stories. Um, there's no indication that this man was actually, actually paid for these stories at all. But th- this, argue, this, uh, this company. Um, I'll get the name in a minute. I think it's called something like um, Team Jorge or, or, or something really quite strange. It's an Israeli intelligence company which places stories on the internet to discredit people and discredit companies and, and businesses. Now, having sat in a newsroom, it's all too easy to believe what lands in your inbox, isn't absolutely, it? Absolutely, absolutely. And very, very difficult now to... Um, I, I think to to check it, and when AI really gets underway, it's going to be even harder because you know you. I don't know if you've tried Chat GBT yet, but you know you I can, haven't dared. You can write a very plausible news story <laughs> with just just about asking the the bot to do it. There has um, been that discussion, hasn't there? To as as we work out what AI does and the role it has in in the future of journalism, the future of news. I know that the OECD is investigating this at the moment. That there was a thought that actually. If you were trying to automate the world um, and and remove people from the jobs that apparently we don't need to do anymore, um, you could do it with sport, with sports reporting, because at the end of the day, a match result is a match result. And Stephen's getting very Steve, worried Steve's on the other side of the table here. But you can't do it with proper news because you can't tell a story with all its human components. Well, actually, um, you know, given how few journalists actually get out of the newsroom and talk to people these days, um, I would not entirely surprised that a bot can do it just as well. A lot of journalists are putting together stories from existing material and they're using a certain amount of human judgment. But, you know, a bot can learn that. That or At least it can learn to mimic that judgment. Mm. How about you, Stephen? Are you ready to read your bot news? Not on sport. No, <laughs> definitely not. Um, no, I, actually, what I was thinking is that, um, as we've already established, um, uh, Isabel and I are not senior. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we go back to the days of newsrooms where um, the copy taster uh, had a, a crucial role. And so because you, you'd get 
there wasn't as much information as the flood of information we have now thanks to the internet but you'd, you'd get the agencies reporting things and you'd needed it was sometimes seen as a rather sort of lowly task but it was actually a crucial task that the copy taster was the first person to see these stories coming off and had to judge should i take this to the newsroom editor yeah. or put it in the bin um, it essentially gluttony. determined the news list for the at least for the first half of the day. Exactly, yeah. and then you then had, of course, the news editor who had to have very good judgment to say, you know, yes, well, this is worth following up or or not, and short or reporting. Um, and there was that was a, there was a system in place. But what's happened, and I certainly saw it in my time at the BBC as as digitalisation increased, and I mean that's going back um, twenty years now, almost since I left. But um, even then, you could see it was coming in, and there was this pressure to get it out quickly. And and there was the, I still I'm horrified to think of the story. It was about two thousand two, I think, where um, a senior. BBC executive, um, who of course sits in his office with a bank of televisions showing all the various channels, and he sent an email round to everyone in uh, news gathering at the BBC saying, "Well done, we beat Sky News by thirty seconds to that story." Who on earth, apart from a news executive with a bank of televisions in his, yeah. n- knows about? And also, beating them on time doesn't necessarily mean you got it right. Yes, you know, it, Sky's, Sky's motto, not wrong for long. Um, we've, got, <laughs> we've got a minute, Isabel, and you wanted to talk to us about how to actually, uh, how the Chinese and the chatbots and the, and the writing there is, is, can be interchangeable. And we, is this our future, I must ask? Well, it, it, if you have to go to compulsory political meetings, it may well be your future. And actually, <laughs> one you would welcome, I did ask the chatbot to write an essay in the style of uh, the Chinese Communist Party about uh, the conduct of COVID and Xi Jinping. And there are, it's, there isn't time to read it all, but within seconds it came back with an absolutely perfect essay about acknowledging the tremendous leadership and dedication of our beloved leader in the fight against the COVID can- pandemic. The pandemic has posed an unprecedented challenge for the Chinese people, but under the guidance of Comrade Xi Jinping, we have stood firm and united in the face of adversity. There are several more paragraphs, which I will spare you. Um, but if you had to write an essay in that vein, wouldn't you want a bot to do it for you? Sounds like a perfectly decent bit of copy to me. I don't know. What did you think, Stephen? I just think people should keep listening to Monocle. Oh, how lovely. Thank you so much for that. And my thanks to you both for joining me in the studio, Isabel Hilton and Stephen DL. Thanks also to our editorial director, Tyler Brule, for joining us on the line from San Moritz. That's where he will be uh, next Sunday for a special edition of Monocle on Sunday. But it remains for me to say thank you to all my guests and to the producer, Desiree Bandley, and our studio manager, Adam Heaton. I'm Emma Nelson. Monocle on Sunday returns next week, as I say, from San Moritz. But for now, have a good weekend. <laughs>